0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. He is risen. Good job. Happy Easter. We're glad that you're here. Um, Man, it's great to see a lot of folks that haven't been around for a while and we understand that it's great to see you back and some new folks if you're new to oak city church we got these just for you uh and so they're out there on the shelf if you're new and you're visiting oak city church we'd love to have you this is a super nice coffee cup like my favorite coffee cup and so we'd love for you to have that as a gift for visiting us this morning let us know if there's any way that um, we can help you or serve you i'm going to ask you guys to stand um and i'm going to read the passage for today we've started doing this as a church you don't have to do this um there's some precedent for it in the bible but it's something that we that some churches have been doing for a long time and we started doing it as an acknowledgement that god's words mean more than my words or your words and there's a weight to god's words Um, and also that we're grateful that God has given us his word. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you guys are on the outside are going to say, because you're in church, thanks be to God. You're going to say it like that. But on the inside, I know you're going to be like, God, thanks for your word. Okay. So (laughs) that's how this is going to go. Um, John chapter 20 verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Um, We have done a series leading up to Easter called Approaching Jesus, and I've gone through different characters um, in the Jesus story from the last few really hours and days leading up to going to the cross, and so we talked about Peter, and we talked about Pilate, and we talked about Judas, and we talked about Joseph of Arimathea, and for Easter, I decided to talk about uh, the Apostle John, and so he's the one that wrote this first firsthand eyewitness account. Of um, seeing and believing the resurrection of Jesus, and I wanted to do that because John has a unique perspective on the resurrection because he lived longer than any uh, anyone else in these narratives. John lived till sometime in the 90s, and so he was probably in his 80s, and and he just gives us a view of what happens when the gospel shapes you over a long period of time that other people can't give us. So let me ask you this: Do you have Do you have people in your life that are older than you uh, that you would like to be like when you get older? Can you think of anybody? Do you have older people that you don't want to be like when you get older? Can you think of any of those people? Oh, man, I knew it was coming. Yeah, it's like young people are like, you are old, man. It's too late to think about this stuff. Um, Can you, who are they? Do you have anybody that just, like, a person that comes to mind? Mr. Rogers? Rogers, That's not bad. (laughs) If we all became more like Mr. Rogers, the world would be a better place. Um, I ask this in the premarital class. I'll ask couples, hey, do you know anybody that's been married 25-plus years whose marriage you would like to have 25-plus years from now? Because it's kind of hard. One, when you get married, 25 years seems like forever forever. Um, and it's kind of hard to like. It's not easy to find people like that. We had a guy when we um, were getting married. We were we went to this couple's house for dinner, and they were pretty old. And he said, "The first 25 years is the hardest. <laughs> After this, it's a breeze." larry stern and stern was appropriate for larry and i didn't want to be like larry when i grew up like (laughs) but he wasn't wrong about that and because but do you have somebody alan you got somebody i was thinking about what's the guy in nicaragua Jim jim hornsby so there's a guy in nicaragua he moved there like 40 years ago he's probably in his 80s now so he wasn't a super young man when he moved there he moved there to start Habitat for Humanity. He's got a picture of himself with Jimmy Carter and Daniel Ortega starting Habitat for Humanity in Nicaragua. And he and his wife just stayed down there. He gave Alan and Josh the land for the Sacred Forest, which has been, like, super helpful, transformative for their ministry. And I met that guy and thought, man, this is a guy, I, like, I feel like he got it right. And it cost him a lot, but he got it right. And John gives us a window into what it looks like to get it right, and forces us to ask the question, like, do we, are we on a path, or are we just kind of running around like a chicken with our head cut off? Do we know what we want to be like, who we want to be like? Do we have an idea of what it would cost to get us there, and are we willing to pay that? So how does the resurrection shape you over 60 years? Now, let me start in this scene and say a few things about John. I think John was probably a little bit quirky, and I also think John of jesus disciples is the one i relate to the best i don't relate to peter peter was super bold he's the first thing that comes to mind comes right out of his mouth i'm way too careful with my words because i'm scared of what people are going to think about me if i say the wrong thing so i get a whole week to think about what i'm going to say on sunday mornings you know and peter wasn't like that john was he was super thoughtful um he was probably a lot more warm and fuzzy than me like you get an idea about john like that and, and a little bit awkward so even in this passage that i read if you um Mason, if you put the first paragraph up. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. It's still dark. Saw the stone had been taken away. So she ran and got, she went to Simon Peter. And John's writing this. And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. He's writing about himself. And five or six times in his gospel, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. That's a little bit obnoxious, right? Like, I have four kids. They are convinced that I have a favorite and that my favorite is okay. Abigail. <laughs> Abigail is my favorite daughter. She's Because I have three sons and one daughter. I do not have a favorite. I have a favorite daughter. But they think that. I was talking to someone the other day at breakfast. And he said his, I think it was his dad said, <laughs> he said this guy was his favorite. To his brother and his stepsisters. And he's like, it ruined everything. They're still mad about it. Um, you can't, to say that is kind of a obnoxious thing, but John, what, and I'll say this later, he wants, he wants every one of us to, to, to think, I am the one whom Jesus loved. Like, that's his fundamental identity. But he's just a little quirky. Here's another thing. If you go, Mason, that second paragraph, Peter went out with the other disciple. They're going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple which again is John, who's writing this, outran Peter and and reached the tomb first. He is the first athlete to refer to himself in the third person, like on paper. And it's so weird. And he does it again in the next paragraph. In the middle of that, he says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. I don't even know why he does that. Like, he's sticking it to Peter later, but by the time he, he writes this, honestly, Peter's probably already been martyred for his faith in Jesus. So that's weird. But then he gets to this line where he says he saw and he believed. And he, the way he describes that moment, John, in his gospel, is, seems really sensory. A couple of weeks ago, I was using a story about Mary pouring perfume over Jesus' feet, and John's recording it, and in the middle of it, he says and the perfume the smell of the perfume filled the room it's like he stops as he's writing this and he's writing it 30 to 50 years after Jesus walked the earth and says oh man I can still smell it in this scene it's like he can still see it are there are there scenes in your life you can go back to and you can still see I was thinking about this my best goal that I scored in high school and it was pretty awesome I can close my eyes and I can see the whole thing happening you know the resurrection is a little bit better than that. And John can see the whole thing. He sees Peter in there. He sees you know, where Jesus would be lying and that there were the clo- the cloths that, that, that covered his body. But then over in this corner was the face cloth and it was folded up. And it's such an obscure detail that I can't, no one, like I've never read anyone that said, here's why that matters, only because it's what he remembered and what he saw and he's an eyewitness to it. And this moment, started to change everything in John's life. Uh, he thought the Jesus thing was over with the cross. And in this moment, he, he doesn't get it, but he believes that Jesus isn't dead, and it's not over, and it starts to change everything. Have you had moments that start to change everything. I thought about um, my wife and I had been married for four years and she was a nurse at Duke in Durham and we lived in Cary so she got up in an ungodly hour uh, to go to work and I was a youth pastor so I went to sleep in an ungodly hour and so she, she got up and she took a pregnancy test and she shook me awake and she showed it to me and I said I don't know what this is and I don't know what those lines mean and she said we're having a baby and then she had to leave so she left and so I, it's like Five o'clock in the morning, and I'm just laying in bed, and I didn't really think about kids. I knew we'd have kids like we'd try and have kids, but I didn't really think about it. In that moment, it becomes real, and you realize that everything is about to change, Uh, and those are magic moments. My kids are now college age, and so we've gone through the process of them trying to figure out where am I going to go to college And uh, you know, can I get in and maybe more importantly, are they gonna give me enough money that it can be realistic that this will work out? And then you say yes, and then you realize like this has started to change everything in the direction of your life. It could be getting a job, you know, the first job out of college, or maybe you've been in a job that you just haven't liked and so you've been looking for other jobs and then you get a chance at the company you always wanted to work for. And I've seen that happen to people here and it starts to change everything. It could be she said yes, and not to the proposal, because no one leaves the proposal out there hanging, right? Everybody knows what she's going to say by the time you get to that point. It's probably the first date where you're like, well, I'm, I'm pretty into her, but I have no idea whether she's into me. And then you ask, and she's like, yeah, we can go out. Uh, and you start thinking, all right, and naming your kids in the head. You know what I mean? Like, this is, it starts to change everything. It could be a second chance. It could be a time in your life where you blew it. You could have blown it professionally um you could have blown it criminally uh you we've probably all blown it relationally to some degree where you find out i'm going to get another shot at this and it changes everything it's this john's having that moment but on steroids and it's a moment that changes everything i'm going to say something here um if you're in church this morning and you have been it's been a minute since you've been in church Uh, and you're just not so sure about all this stuff, Paul says something later about this moment that I find incredibly helpful. And so there's so much about the Christian faith, about the Bible, about the Jesus story that is so complicated. And I, I like study this stuff for a living. I have so many questions. I guarantee I have bigger questions than you because I spent more time in it, you know. But John says this, this is the question that matters the most is this moment, the resurrection. So he's writing to the church in Corinth, and, and some people in that church were saying, no, it's like the lights go out, no one has risen from the dead. And he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, I'm wasting my time, and your faith is in vain, you're wasting your time. It's this moment, it's the resurrection of Jesus that matters more than anything. It's the hinge of history. This is a man that walked the earth, lived an exemplary life, a model life, died at the hands of the Romans and and we no one can find the body and his disciples insisted they saw him um, after he rose and that was their message that Jesus has risen from the dead. This is it. Paul goes on, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, God has probably ticked off at us if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And we're telling everybody that Jesus rose from the dead, which he's right about that. Um, and then he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's doubling down on that. And then he says, you're still in your sins. And so this is a bit, but he says the cross really doesn't matter without an empty tomb. Because it's the tomb that tells us that Jesus has the power over sin and he has overcome death. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead is available to us. And so that's, we meet on, the church meets on Sundays because it's the first day of the week. And it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate the resurrection every week. And the resurrection is a bit crazy. It, you know, it's a lot. And, and it's supposed to be. I kind of expect people to visit on Christmas and Christmas Eve because it's quiet and it's tame, and it's baby, and we see babies born all the time. We don't see people rise from the dead ever, and it's crazy unless it's true. And we're here because we believe that it's true, and it changes everything. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great line. He said, Christianity if false is of no importance, and if true is of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And this is the moment. This is the moment. So people don't debate that Jesus lived, Uh, people don't debate that Jesus was crucified, serious historians don't debate that he was crucified by the Romans. Um, There's a guy in Chapel Hill named Bart Ehrman who's like a a renowned skeptic, used to be a Christian and now is agnostic at best and maybe atheist. He doesn't even deny that the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not sure how he explains it away, but he knows that the church couldn't have happened if the disciples didn't have real experience, or didn't believe they had real experiences with the risen Jesus. And other than John, they all died for their faith. Um, Their lives were transformed by it. And all these things were taught really soon. And it's hard to explain all of those facts that are not denied. It's hard to explain them without the resurrection. People tried. There's a theory called the swoon theory that Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross, and a few days later he pulled it together and said, hey guys, and, like that's not a great theory. There's a theory that the Romans or the Jewish leaders took the body, but those, those aren't great theories because they don't have a reason to do that, and they would have just produced the body when the church started going crazy. There's a theory that the disciples took the body, but then they would have had to start a religion following like the most moral guy we've ever seen on the foundation of the lie that he rose from the dead that doesn't make sense and there's a theory that some teenage kids took the body i'm just kidding there's not really a theory but that makes more sense than the rest of the theories like something super significant happened and so i'm just saying if like if you've ignored that and not really engaged it and thought well it didn't happen because this stuff doesn't happen i'd encourage you to give it another look and i'd love to give it another look with you um, just got a, a bunch of stuff available to talk about that um, because plenty of people have taken a look and concluded that it that it really happened. Now, with the life of John, we get a picture of why it matters. And like I said, he gives us a unique window into the power of the resurrection because he lives so much longer than the other disciples. Um, the other disciples will die scattered doing what Jesus told them to go and make disciples. And so a couple die. In India, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs where they go through all of this a couple die in india one dies in africa peter dies in rome like they're all martyrs for their faith we don't know what happened to the women in these scenes john is there for all of it and his life is documented like there's so many documents from early church fathers a guy named irenaeus tells us that john was the pastor of the church at ephesus in modern-day turkey a guy named polycarp another church father who became the bishop of Smyrna, was john's disciple um and there's a guy named Tertullian who tells us that the Emperor Domitian poured boiling over oil over John, trying to martyr him, and he didn't die. And he exiled him to the island of Patmos, which is a Greek island, which is where he wrote um, the Revelation. And so when he dies, it's in, our best information is in the 90s AD, and so he's probably in his 80s. And... And he writes a book at the end of his letter, 1 John, towards the end of his life, that gives us an idea of what he looks like um, after 60 years of following Jesus. And so this is 1 John chapter 5, and just one little snippet from that. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for the, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? And so here's three things I wanna say out of what, what the gospel did in his life, the resurrection over 60 years. Love becomes the most important thing In your life that's the first one you follow god because you want to not because you have to that's the second one and you live in this world out of the belief that there's something coming that is so much better than this world and you see those things in john so love becomes the most important thing in your life and man we need this right now don't we uh it becomes the thing that you focus on that you want the most that you really exert energy for that makes you content But if you took a look around our culture right now, what would you say is the thing we want the most as a culture? What are some of the things that we want the most, that we strive after the most? Power. Power. Wealth. Wealth. Stuff. Stuff. Someone said something back there. Acceptance. Acceptance. And someone said something here, too security would right. Someone say to be right yeah self. self we would say love right but I think our actions would say something different honestly I thought sex so huge in our culture right now we think this is the thing that's going to do its status stuff to be right and for everybody to know that we're right um like if we have a horrible cultural case of fomo and experience there was a commercial out recently where the has anybody seen this the guy says uh when you take your last breath are you going to wish you'd worked more and you think you know where this is going and he's going to talk about your loved ones but then he's on like a beach or something and he's like no you're going to wish you traveled more and i'm like wait a second uh What, yeah, what does love cost us? Would we be willing to give up our right to be right in order to love the people around us? Because that's probably a choice that we make every day in our individual relationships, right? <laughs> um, I was talking to someone this day who said they hadn't taken, their extended family hadn't taken a trip to the beach together for six years because the last time they did it was 2016, and it ended up in tears and shouting <laughs> over a certain election that happened in 2016. Like, those things will keep us from love. Uh, What would you say is the most important thing in your life? And then what would your best friend say, or your spouse, or your parents, or your children, or your coworkers, what would they say is the most important thing in your life? Would it be love? You read those letters of John, and even his gospel account that is written years after it happened, and I don't think anyone doubts that love, it, it is the thing in his life. Um, and, I, and I think we don't love better because it's really hard to love people well over long periods of time. Uh, I have said this before, it's summer beach season and we go to the beach with our extended family for four days and not four weeks because it's hard. Unless you're the Meeks, every time they're like, we could spend four weeks, and I believe them. Uh, and hopefully you can, you know, but it's hard. Um, we are hard to, like individually, you are hard to love at times, right? Could we all say that? I can be hard to love at times, right? Let's say that with me. I can be hard to love at times. Can I get an amen? Yeah. If you spend too much time around you, you're a little bit annoying, <laughs> you know? And. John's secret when it comes to loving other, others well is, is right there in his gospel. It's knowing how well he's been loved. That phrase that he used to describe himself, I am the one whom Jesus loves, that was the center of who John was. It wasn't peripheral, it was it. I, tell my, I used to tell my kids this more um, than, I, than I do now, but the most important thing about them is that the god who made them loves them honestly i need to tell myself that more because that is the most important thing about us the cross tells us he loves us that he's forgiven us the resurrection tells us that he started the process of changing us into the people um, that he made us to be and when you are well loved you can love well but that's a matter of do we make this the central thing in our life or do we make it a peripheral thing? And um, Paul tells us that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if we are in Christ, that spirit is in us. He tells the Galatians the fruit of that spirit is, what's he say first? The fruit of the spirit is what? Love. It's love and joy and peace and patience and then kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all the things that you need to love. And this guy lived it. Another passage from from that letter. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. I have no doubt that love is important to every one of us in the room, and that we have people that we love and we would die for. I also have no doubt that it's not as important as it ought to be, not as satisfying as it ought to be, not a source of contentment in the way that it could be. Um, And when love gets hard, we turn our attention to so many other things that seem like they're easier to love and more satisfying, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the way John is living this out is the truth. So love becomes the most important thing in your life. Here's another one. You follow God because you want to, not because you have to. And so he says in this passage, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey God's commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And that word is it just means heavy; it's like a weight. Do God's commands ever seem like a drag to you? Uh, I was, I saw this cartoon a few weeks ago. I don't. Can you read that? He says, um. He says at the bottom, it's two guys. Like in heaven, and the one guy says, I guess what I miss the most is being drunk. And um, I read it. I was at the Hayes house, and he had a book of cartoons from the New Yorker, famous magazine. And I saw it, and I thought, this is coming soon to a sermon near you. (laughs) Um, But I think about this a lot. Like, we totally misunderstand what heaven is. And God doesn't have a problem with alcohol. He turned water into wine, and he uses He used wine for communion, Uh, but this guy's saying, you know what? God's okay, but I really miss drinking. What's his God? What's our God? And John knew Jesus, and he wasn't buying that. He knew there was nothing like Jesus. There was nothing that could satisfy like his relationship with Jesus. And so many of us, myself included, find so much satisfaction in trivial things that we chase after that won't bring lasting joy. And John could say that over a lifetime of trusting Jesus consistently and testing Jesus and knowing how good he was and how much God loved him. You think about what John experienced. He lost he lost all his best friends, right? And he lost him to horrible, premature, unjust deaths. And then they tried to kill John himself and sent him into exile. It'd be easier to grow bitter towards God to obey God to the least possible limit, but he didn't, and that is part of the reason I believe this book is that is the same lie that the devil has been telling since the beginning of the book that there's something better out there than God. There's something that will satisfy you more, and God put that tree in the middle of the garden, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and Eve looked at it and saw, man, it, it does look good, and it's even good for food. It tastes good, But she didn't believe God that there was a consequence to it. And what was better was just to trust that God is going to tell you um, what good and evil is in the timing that you need to know it. Because we can't handle that information without relationship with him. And John cultivated that relationship with God and realized that the things apart from God can be fun for a while but lead to some form of death on the inside without him. Paul said, God's given us all things richly to enjoy. The, the things are good. But he also said, the problem comes when we take the created things and put them in place of the creator, and we make them the things that are going to give us life instead of God, the one that's going to give us life, and they only lead to death. So his following, following the Lord um, wasn't a, a have to, it became a want to for him, and that's how you know you're getting there over long periods of time. And here's the last one. You live in this world out of the belief that there's something coming that's so much better than this world. Another part of this letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In the first passage I read, it says that that he's overcome, we've overcome the world. And that word is a Greek word, nikao, I think is how you say it. It's Nike. I didn't realize that. Maybe everybody realized that, that Nike stands for victory, which makes sense, right? But he's saying you can have victory over the world. I think most of the time I want victory in the world, you know? (laughs) I want the things to go well, to conquer, to have all the things. I don't want victory over it, but he said there's a victory over it where it loses it's grip on you. And this is so hard, right? There's a great scene from The Simpsons. I didn't watch Simpsons a lot. A pastor friend of mine told me about this years ago where Mr. Burns, I see the rich guy? And Bart says to Mr. Burns, man, Mr. Burns, you are so rich. And Mr. Burns says, I am, but I'd give it all away for just a little bit more. And we live so much of our life like that. We hear so many stories of people that got all that they hoped and dreamed for but they weren't satisfied with it and it's so hard to be satisfied uh, and and not think like these things are the thing that is going to bring me satisfaction i um am anybody watch the golf tournament last week two people okay more so it was pretty boring a guy named scotty scheffler won the golf tournament never heard of him before and he, like, went out to a lead in the second round and never really gave it back. The guy that was close on Sunday had a, had a gorgeous mullet and a, and, and a dirty mustache. Let's be honest about it. That's what it was. And I really wanted him to win just because of that, you know. Um, but then Scotty Scheffler won. And then I started reading about him. He loves him some Jesus. So this, I saw this this week. He wrote himself a note before the Masters, or maybe during it. This is what he wrote himself. If I win this golf tournament, it will change my life on the golf course, but it won't change my personal life at home. Winning the golf tournament isn't going to satisfy my soul or my heart. I know that going in, so I'm able to to Oh, I can't read that. to play freely knowing that the rest isn't really up to me. I'm just going to do my best. This guy's 25 years old. I want to be like him when I grow up. He just won the Masters. He is a made man when it comes to golf. And he gets it. I mean, he loves Jesus. And he gets that this is not going to do it. That's where the resurrection should take you. There's a pastor I follow named Tim Keller. A couple years ago, he got pancreatic cancer. About six months after he got cancer, he gave his first interview. And he said that he and his wife... And man, I want to be like Tim Keller when I get older. But he said, cancer, he said, de- he said we believe in Jesus, and, but our, our faith is kind of an abstraction because of the reality that we live in. He said, since we're facing mortality, like pancreatic cancer is not a great diagnosis. He said, since we're facing it right then, everything becomes more real and clarifying. And he said, for both he and his wife, they realized that there were things on earth that they were, trying to be, they were trying to make into heaven. And so for him, it was ministry. And ministry is a great thing, but he, his ministry successes were the thing that he wanted to satisfy him and to make into heaven. And for her, it was they would vacation with their family to the same places every year. And those were the places that were heaven. And they realized that they low-level hated those things because they couldn't give them what they wanted, so they let go of them. And they became more satisfying as they let go of them and just let them in their place. And John has gotten that. Like, he's in this world, but he knows there's so much better than this world. There was a story on WRL this week about the owner of a coffee shop locally. Did anybody see this? Sola's coffee shop. And um, it was something that this made it onto WRL. They really appreciated this guy. And it was the husband of, of the lady that passed away. And he wrote, In God's providence, my dear wife and mama to Ben, Mara, and Sally, and many staff over the years, um, Ed Sola has gone home to be with our Savior. And she had ALS. He said, the hard gift of ALS over these last three and a half years has given us the opportunity to experience a severe and prolonged suffering in a redemptive way. God has used ALS to loosen our grip on the things of this world. God has used ALS to loosen our grip on the things of this world, to move our hearts towards heaven and Jesus, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He's quoting Revelation, which is John. That's hard. Um, and these two have said it, it took facing death to get us to the point of letting go of the things here. And John um, John, got there. and And that's Hard as someone who's not old yet, no matter what you young people think, but middle age. It's hard to let go of some dreams and some things, and to and to give up on the idea that those were the things that were going to do it, and to agree that there's just something so much better, and in order to do that, to overcome the world, you can't, you can't. Overcome, you can't have victory in the world to have victory over the world. They, like those two things, you can't have a foot in both kingdoms. And I think we try and do that so much. And this is where Jesus says you have to lose your life to save your life, is to let go and to trust Him. But you risk, and Paul said this too, playing the fool in this world to surrender to the things for the next. And you think, man, how did John do that? And I thought, well, if you had seen your best friend. Who, in three years on earth changed your life after he had risen from the dead and you experienced him you could probably believe there is something so much better than this and loosen your grip on it john says at the end of his gospel um or jesus says this and john records it blessed are you who have seen and believed but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, and that's us. He, he lived this life knowing there's so much better coming uh, and lived in light of that. that. This is the morning for John that changed everything. It started to change everything, and this is what it produced over 50 years. For if you're following Jesus, I feel like these three things are a test. They're a test for me. It is love becoming more and more the thing that's most important in my life are the commands of God becoming more want to's and less have to's and am I living this life out of the belief that there's this is just there's so there's something so much better coming and if you haven't believed or you haven't been following Jesus um, really it's an invitation it's a vision of what he wants for your life and it is a test in its own way to say man where am I headed to step back and say where am i headed and where do i want to go and it's the invitation that christ gives through the resurrection of what you could be and more than anything it's a picture of jesus because jesus is one for whom love was the most important thing in his life and jesus was for one for whom following his father was not a have to but it was a want to and jesus lived his life here knowing uh, for the joy set before him he endured the cross knowing that he would be at the right hand of the father he knew what was coming next and invites us into that life the band's going to come back up um, we're going to invite you to take communion and just a few things happen here we've got these connect cards in your seats in front of you and and they're um they're connect like for you to connect with us uh, there's some spots for prayer requests on there or praises and we'd encourage you to fill those out you can drop those in these basket if you come up after service or if you come up to take communion and we'd love to pray for you. If you're brand new, you can check the box, and we'd love to just reach out and say hello to you. But it may be you connecting with God, and there's something that he's been talking to you about where you just need to jot down a few notes, tuck it in your pocket, and spend some time with him later on that. And then we are going to, um, John and I are going to be up here, and the, the way that we do communion is um, that John and I will be up here, and as you pass by, we will, we will be saying to you, this is the body of Christ that's been broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. And we do this remembering Uh, that Jesus lived and died and rose again to free us from our sins and give us the hope of eternal life with him. Father, thanks for uh, the Apostle John. Thanks for the recollections that we have um, that he did live this out over a long period of time and gives us an idea of how the resurrection is meant to change us. Would you be changing us into people like him, God, would love, would we be different than the world around us? Because love is the most important thing, because following you is a want to and not a have to, and because we are living here knowing that there is something better coming, God, would your spirit transform us into those people? And thank you for that promise, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.